Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 10. Last week in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus told the disciples at the very end of 9, uh, right around verse 35 through 38, that they needed to pray for laborers because the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. So at the very end of 9, he's telling his disciples that this is what they need to do. They need to start praying for laborers. And then in 10, essentially what he does is he sends them out as laborers. He says, this, this is work that needs to get done, and you guys are essentially the first fruit of that. I'm sending you out first, and here's what you can expect. So Matthew 10 essentially is about sending the disciples out to do the work of the ministry, and it sets a framework for ministry, but it also helps manage expectations moving forward for what we should see ministry as. Because it doesn't end with these 12 guys. There's a great commission that comes later in Matthew, and essentially that falls to all of us. It is not just the original apostles' responsibility to go out and preach the gospel. It extends all the way down to every disciple to go out and preach the gospel. So what we're doing in Matthew 10 is we're looking at what Jesus told the disciples, and we're looking at how that managed the expectations of what we should see in ministry in our own life. Cool? We'll get back into that in a little bit. I want to read some of it first. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. It says, so he called to him his 12 disciples. I'm sorry, I get this question a lot. What version are you reading from? I traditionally read from the ESV, right? So if you want to follow along in that, that's the one we're reading. I tried to remember saying that, and I forgot. So Matthew 10, 1 uh, says, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First was Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Then James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now these 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Why? Because that's gonna come later. Verse six, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while you're there, heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse lepers and cast out demons. You received without paying, go and give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. And if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave 
that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. All right, let's pause right there because that's a lot. So Jesus has been doing all of these works of miracles and ministry all the way up through Matthew chapter 9. And at this point, he calls his disciples together and he gives them the same authority that he has. Now we understand how authority works because back in Matthew chapter 8, we saw the, the, um, the, the kind of how authority works from when the centurion talks to him. He says, look, I, I understand how this works. Like I'm a man of authority. The only reason why I have authority is because I'm under authority. I don't have authority in and of myself. If I connect myself under somebody in authority, then I have authority. Now that's really important, but that's kind of not our point for today, but it is kind of, I think it would be beneficial for you to kind of put an asterisk in that under the idea that authority is connected to submitting to authority. You follow? You only have authority when you submit to it. You don't have authority if you refuse to follow authority. You can't talk to people about Jesus if you're not following what Jesus says. You understand? All right, so that's a, that's a side note. What I want to get into today is Matthew's approach in Matthew 10, because in chapter 10, it is important for us to understand that we can read this from two different perspectives, and both perspectives are equally important, and we need to see both of them as we're reading through this. Now, the first perspective is that this is a story of Jesus speaking directly to the 12 apostles, the 12 guys whose words carried the same authority as Jesus' words. They had the authority that Jesus gave them to carry the same mission that Jesus gave them. But within this, beyond just a story of these 12 guys going out and doing ministry work, Jesus was also, in the way that he talked with them, setting expectations for ministry moving forward. And what I mean by that is he starts off in chapter 10 with specific instructions about Gentile towns. So we know that that part has to do with these 12 guys, right? When you go out, don't go to those Gentile towns and avoid the Samaritans because right now we're going after the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's specifically for right then. But then as he goes through, and I haven't read this yet, but we'll get there in 16, he eventually, in the same conversation, navigates into managing their expectations of the kind of persecution that they're gonna face. That ultimately, you guys are gonna be dragged before leaders and governors, and you're gonna be beaten, and some of you will be killed. Well, that's not gonna happen on this specific excursion. When he sends them out, they're all coming back. So Jesus is saying, hey, this is the thing that's gonna happen right now, but while you're out there, I do need to let you guys know that this is the kind of stuff that's gonna happen as ministry continues, and I send you out on a regular basis. But it doesn't even end there, because later on, by the end of this conversation, by the end of 10, he's broadened this commission to a form of encouragement that doesn't just extend to these guys or what will happen to them in the next 10 years, it extends to all disciples everywhere. The encouragement that he gives them when he says, look, uh, your, your heavenly father is gonna be with you and when you're dragged before people, don't worry about what you say. That's not just for them. 
When he says, hey, you don't have to be afraid because your heavenly father, he loves you. He treasures you more than the sparrows in the sky. He's not just saying that to those guys. He's saying that to you, all of you in here today. That didn't just, he doesn't just care about the apostles. He cares about all of us. So what I'm trying to say is that since there are two perspectives in Matthew chapter 10, I'd like to read it with both perspectives in mind. Is that cool? Doesn't matter if it's not cool, I'm gonna do it anyway. Verse five, he says to the disciples, I'm sending you out. And he gives the specific instructions about where they are supposed to head. But he doesn't send them out individually, he sends them out together. So for the one side of this, this is important because now we know that they were sent out. In other gospels, we're told they were sent out two by two. We know that they were sent out in pairs, they were sent out in groups, they were sent out together. What does that mean for us? How does this remind us about ministry today? Well, it reminds us that ministry has never been a solo, a solo project. Ministry has never been about you like cutting your own solo album and doing your own thing. Ministry has always been about being connected to other people, mutual submission under the authority of Jesus. And the reason why that is is because there are certain gifts that I have and there are certain gifts that I lack. I don't have everything that is needed to accomplish all of God's work here on earth. But the things that I am lacking in, many of you have. And that in itself, the way God structured that, puts a dependency on you in relationship so that I can accomplish what God has for me without you and vice versa. So what it does is it creates within the culture of God's family a mutual dependency where, man, I need you. I can't accomplish God's plan. I can't do what he wants me to do without you. And that means I've got to submit, I've got to follow, I've got to love, I've got to care for, I've got to serve all of us together. Cool? That's an important part of what he does because when he sends them out, he doesn't send them out on, on their own, he sends them out together. Now in verse seven, building on this idea, he tells them, he proclaims to them, says go preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he, look, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So Jesus is sending these disciples to proclaim light and overcome darkness. That's essentially what he's doing. Proclaim the kingdom and shut down this other kingdom. Go forth and be light. Project the good stuff of God's kingdom. Be light. And what happens when you turn lights on? Darkness flees. So the very fact that you are following Jesus and, and obeying his commands and letting his light shine through, you are naturally going to push back the kingdom of darkness. And in this specific situation, it has to do with, man, healing the sick, raising the dead, cleanse the lepers. So this reminds us that as disciples today, the world is still a very, very dark place, but we are sent as ambassadors of light. This hasn't changed. It's still a dark place, and God is still sending his people out as a city on a hill, as salt, as something in the culture that shines brighter than the culture, illuminates things that are wrong in the culture, and ultimately highlights Jesus. You can see Jesus working by examining my life. This is what he's saying. So light does one thing really well. It illuminates and drives away darkness. And this is the, the kind of what's behind what he's saying when he's saying, I want you to go heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. He's saying, I want you, 
by doing ministry to push the kingdom of darkness, demonic forces, and that includes sickness and sin and pain. I want you to push it back, push it back where it belongs. Which means that if you're gonna be doing that, you can't entertain or fellowship with darkness. Because if you're responsible for casting it out, you can't be friends with it. Now at this point, you're probably implying like, where do you fall on this stuff? I tend to believe that this kind of stuff didn't stop. We're encouraged by Paul in numerous places to pray for the sick. So that's still, in, I mean, that's still within bounds. We're supposed to pray for the sick. Raise the dead. I don't see that that's ever stopped. We're all heading towards an ultimate raising the dead, so I don't have a problem saying that's probably something that's in God's wheelhouse. Cleansing lepers, casting out demons. This is all stuff that's in God's wheelhouse. Do you see it on a regular basis in the American church? No, not too much. Why? Because we're too busy giving our hearts to stuff in the American culture. The reason why you don't see a ton of healing, I'm just gonna lay it out there, um, supernatural healing is because, man, we've got, we got medicine, we got doctors. There is not a faith that we need in order to stand before um, our Father and say, look, I got no other options. I, I'm praying, Lord, please intervene, pray. I'm, I'm praying to you, I, 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 need you to, I need you to intervene. I want you to heal my kid. I can't do anything, right? A lot of us, that's not our go-to. The, the first was just like, man, I'm just gonna call the doctor. The doctor knows what to do. And I'm not knocking that. Modern medicine is a, is a common grace. That's an awesome thing. But you go to other countries that don't have access to things like water, guess what their first uh, response when their kid gets sick is? It's not going to a doctor, because we ain't got one. Did you follow where I'm going with this? And so, like, I'm I'm not the kind of guy that just says, all that that wild stuff in the Bible, it all stopped. It's not happening like that anymore. Man, I got news for you. We're headed for some wild stuff, right? We're a group of people who believe that all of us are going to come back from the dead. That's pretty weird, right? We're we're a group of people who believe we're going to come out of the grave and Jesus is going to blow a horn. He's going to call us. We're going to raise up into the sky. Our clothes are going to be somehow left behind. I don't know how all that works, but we're talking about like a new heaven and a new earth. We're talking about like overcoming, like sick. There's a, a final judgment. Like there's some strange stuff that we believe if you're just an outsider listening to us talk about things that are normal with us. So if you just want to go ahead and throw like casting out demons and healing the sick like this, it really is not that weird. Jesus did it, his whole ministry. He's telling his guys to do it. So that's the thing that I think should be normal. We should be praying for it. But the faith that we use to pray for somebody to, to, to get healed, we should also use that same faith to trust that God's gonna answer our prayer the, the way that he sees fit. So when I pray for someone to be healed, I'm praying like they're gonna be healed. Lord, heal their body, heal everything in them. I want you to heal them. But the faith that I have to pray for this healing is the same faith I walk away with saying, and, and also, Lord, you're gonna do what you're gonna do and I trust that you know what is best. Because some situations require us to keep an affliction for us to learn something that you wouldn't learn without that affliction. And so I can't make a blanket statement, hey, God always heals every time you pray, and if he didn't, you just didn't have enough faith. That's not how it works. But there is a level of faith we're expected to live in that doesn't rely on dependency here in this world. You follow? So ultimately, what are we saying here? We're saying is that for every disciple of Jesus, you have an innate responsibility by the way that you live to push back the kingdom of darkness and not be its best friend, not be entertained by it, 
Not create, cut, cut covenants with it and get close to it. Your responsibility is push back the kingdom of darkness, not get close to it. Amen? Verse 9, you just acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no tunics. So they left without baggage and they left with no way to charge for ministry. That's important. They didn't leave with the little card swipers on their phones. So it's like, as I give you good word, like, and that's going to be 10 bucks. Like, I've got this vial of holy water and it's only $5. Right, I, will, I'm, I prayed over this cloth and I'm gonna send it out and all I need you to is send back in a faith offering. That's not how it works. Jesus sent these guys out and he's like, look, I, I want you to not pack bags because I want you to trust that God's gonna take care of yourself and I don't want you to make provision for you to just make a buck off of ministry. What is he saying to us? Well, he, he says in there that, look, um, a laborer, verse 10, for the laborer deserves his food. So essentially he's saying like, look, people are gonna take care of you. So I'm not saying that when you go out and you have nothing that you've gotta just be completely poor and, and, and go without food. No, people are gonna take care of you. God's gonna move on their heart and they're gonna give and you're gonna be taken care of. But I don't want you turning ministry into a business. This is not a lucrative business opportunity. This is not your backup plan because you flunked out of college and being a preacher is the only thing you do well because you're a good speaker. Like this isn't your backup plan. This isn't your retirement policy. This isn't the way that you're gonna make it when you're old because you can't hack it in any other business and so you're gonna go to the church because the one skill that you do have is you're a pretty decent teacher. He's saying that, look, when it comes to ministry, there is the highest of standards. And one of them is that when you come to do God's work, you remind yourself constantly, this is a family, it's not a business. This is a family, it's not a business. This is a family, it's not a business. We're not here setting metrics and trying to hit goals like they do in the world and organizations and business to justify the organization being in existence. You don't do that in your family. Well, I don't know, I mean, you didn't hit those grades, so I know you're only in seventh grade, but you're gonna have to find your own place pretty soon. <laughs> Nobody does that. A good father doesn't do that. But really, like, the Bible is filled with family language. You know what it's not filled with? Business language. There, there's no professionals. I've got the pastoral candidates reading a book um, called Brothers, We Are Not Professionals by John Piper. And there's a quote in it that really stood out to me this week. I want to read it to you because I think it drives home what we're talking about here. The idea that we can't professionalize ministry. And he says this, he says, the more professional we long to be, the more spiritual death we leave in our wake. For there is no professional childlikeness, there is no professional tenderheartedness, and there is no professional panting after God like we're told in Psalm 42.1. So the idea being that as we gather as a people, there should be some level of organization and accountability and structure, but that comes from what we're told in the New Testament on how we structure and not informed by the business culture in the world. We're not looking for angel investors 
to give us a huge sum of money so that we can make it work for the next year. And if we can't hit some metric of a certain amount of people so that we, you know, we can keep ourselves afloat, then we just gotta, we gotta fold and close the door. That's not, that is not even in the realm of what we do when it comes to ministry. And he continues in verse 11 through 15. He says, whatever town you enter into, find out who is worthy in it and stay there when you depart. Whoever is not worthy, go ahead and leave. So they were instructed to, as they go into these towns, find worthy ones. Now, what is he talking about? What's, what's somebody who's worthy? What he's talking about is people who are people of faith. Look for people who have faith in me. Look for the ones who are hungry for more of God. Look for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the ones who think, I'm doing you a favor letting you stay here. No, 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 I'm the one receiving the blessing by letting you come under my roof because man, the message you've got, my family needs. And so what he's saying is, as you go out, if the home is filled with faith, go ahead and stay there. If it's not, go ahead and leave. Don't make it a huge deal. Don't spend the night trying to convince this person that what you're selling is worth them buying. This is important for us because it reminds us that evangelism is not a popularity contest. Because often we think it is. We think that we're not going to make an impact. I can't say something truthful to this person. I can't preach the gospel to them because they're not gonna hear me because man, this person, they just look at me. I just, I'm just, I'm not even in the same sphere of, relationship is them. But then you go read the words of Paul and over and over and over, he's just accused of this guy who's like not really a great speaker and doesn't know when to stop talking and just rambles and rambles and goes on and on and on. And people are like, man, he's not really that great speaker, but man, dude, the dude operates in power. The Holy Spirit moves through him. When he does start speaking, it's just like, God, it's gotta be God because he's not really that polished. That's good news for us, right? That's great news because it takes responsibility off of you that I got to go to college and I got to Paul, I got to buy new clothes. I, the worship teams all got to be dressed the same, all matching colors, and the, the music's got to be perfect, and the, and the message has got to be, and we got to make sure our trailer's not stolen, and we got to make sure that the lights are all working and everything's good. And, you know, like, uh, what else can we, we got to get a, you know, maybe a Jumbotron, a better screen than this, all that stuff, it doesn't matter. That stuff doesn't matter. And the reason why it doesn't matter is because what he's telling his disciples. What you're looking for are people who have faith. And the people who have faith, I mean, they're gonna get what you're talking about. And the people who don't, they're gonna go somewhere else anyway. So stop spending all of your time trying to change who you are to convince them that it's worth their time to forsake all and follow Jesus. You're wasting your time changing who you are and treating evangelism like a popularity contest. We can't be cool enough to convince the world that Jesus is worth their time. That's not the point of the church. When we gather, our main goal is not to prove that our music is as good as the world's and that what we have to say is as good as the world. It's not. It's completely contrary to the world. It is a message of leave, forsake, die to your flesh. That's not what the world is selling. The world is selling you can have everything that you already have and then add more to it. That is the opposite of the gospel message. 
That is not what Jesus said. Jesus said, leave it all behind and follow me down a very, very narrow path. And when you look around, you're not even gonna see many people around you because it's that narrow. It's so narrow, there's not room for baggage. You gotta leave all that stuff behind. You gotta die to yourself. And he continues with that when he goes into Matthew um, 10, 16. So let's keep reading. So uh, he's speaking the truth and he's saying, look, these guys are gonna, you know, many of them are gonna reject it and you're just gonna have to be okay with that. Like you're not gonna win everybody. He says in verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep amongst wolves. So when you're out there, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for you are to say what will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but it's the spirit of your Father speaking through you. Look, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. Brother is gonna deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will raise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end, they're gonna be saved. When they persecute you in one town, just, just flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. And if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? I'll pause right there. Because Jesus is starting to manage our expectations, all right? Now we've kind of gone beyond the disciples. This is gonna happen to them, but it's also, he's essentially saying, look, as far as ministry goes, there's some things you need to understand. It is not always gonna be rainbows and unicorns. And the faster you understand that, the better off you're gonna be. Because you're gonna convince yourself it is rainbows and unicorns. And you're gonna set church budgets like it's rainbows and unicorns. But it's not. What we're promised is not things always going our way. We're told that the mission field we're being sent out into is full of wolves, people who devour people. And therefore, our posture should be very unique when it comes to the way that we represent Jesus. Our posture should be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, what does that mean? I think what it means is that we should be wise and alert and sharp, but not have poison under our tongues. That we are sharp as a tack and wise and aware and very astute in social situations, but we're not the kind of people who are so quick to just use our tongue to just cut people. Because we're not just wise as serpents, we're innocent as doves, we're gentle, we're harmless, we're peaceful. Our character is transparent. The disciple of Jesus is sharp, but gentle. And there's so many wolves and so much darkness, we're gonna have to go ahead and expect that there's persecution. And this is what's really interesting. The disciples are told that they can go ahead and expect the worst. And I think it would be in our best interest if we prepared for the same thing. Now look, this is not a popular message. This is not what we want to hear. And the reason why we don't want to hear it is because for most of our understanding and the, kind of the most that, the way that we've lived um, through our life is that um, in, in our culture, Christianity has, has, has just always been accepted. 
In, in, in a lot of circles, especially in the South, Christianity has been seen as almost like a, um, uh, kind of like a, like a, um, like a, a medal or, or some kind of representation of like some moral superiority. It's just like within the culture of the world, uh, it, you know, good people, they go to church. I don't know if you've been paying attention or not, but that's slipping away real quick. And we're, we're quickly approaching a world that they don't, they don't like our God and they don't like us. And I'm just talking about like the political side of things or the way that we can't control our mouths on social media. I'm not talking about persecution for that stuff. I'm talking about persecution because you live what Jesus told you to live. Most of you, you've never really experienced it, but it does happen in other countries. And to live like it is not going to happen to us, I think is unwise. And the reason why I think it's unwise is because for us to be unprepared for what we're promised is coming our way is going to leave us in a position where we're frantic when this stuff does start happening to us. Look, I'm just gonna be as honest as I possibly can. I am pretty sure that sometime in the near future, the idea that you could contribute to a church and that is a tax-exempt organization and you're gonna get some kind of benefit from it, man, that's gone, that's gonna be gone. And you're gonna have to make a decision. Am I giving because the Bible told me to? Or am I giving because there's a, there's a tax benefit to it? I'm, I'm convinced we're gonna hit a, st- a, a place where I'm gonna be told, look, we're not going to let you officiate legal marriages unless you agree to officiate homosexual marriages. And unless I agree to the stipulations that structure within government would set up for that, I won't be ordained to officiate those kind of, and so probably what's gonna happen is, if you wanna get married, you're gonna have to have two ceremonies. I'll officiate one, and then you're gonna have to go down the courthouse and get another one to make it legal. And the reason why this is happening is because there is coming a divide between what Jesus tells us that we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to live and how the world is telling us is appropriate for us to live. And you're gonna have to make a decision. And you need to know that when you make that decision, if you sit with Jesus, you will be persecuted. Go ahead and prepare for it. This is the sober wake up. It's not here completely yet, but I think we can all hear the freight train running. It's coming this way and it's speeding quick. We're promised this is coming and so to think that, well, I mean, this promise is for somebody else, it's not for us. Look, it's coming our way because Jesus was persecuted, Jesus was accused of evil and lies and we are not greater than Jesus, therefore we should probably prepare. If they did it to him, and we're not greater than him, then it's probably coming our way. So the question now is how do we prepare? Well, I would argue that when he tells us in verse 26 how to prepare is probably the best way for us to prepare, which is for us to start becoming more acquainted with the promises that come with the persecution. How can I endure persecution? I'm familiar with God's promises through it. So uh, go to 10, 26. This is, So you have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. That's a promise. 
How can you endure lies against you? Persecution? Because nothing that is covered will not be revealed. Everything that's hidden is going to be known. It may not be on your timetable, but you're promised by God that everything will come out. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I thought hell wasn't a real place. Oh, hell is a very real place. Hell is not just um, how bad your life is right now. It's gonna get infinitely worse if you reject Jesus for the rest of eternity. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father knowing, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'm gonna deny him before my father who is in heaven. So how can we endure persecution? Well, first, he tells us in that section from 18 on to 24 that the Holy Spirit is gonna give us the words that we need to say. So we don't have to be anxious about what's gonna happen in those moments. Oh, I don't really like all this talk about persecution. Can we have like a nicer message? Like it's Valentine's Day. Couldn't you like go over to Corinthians and talk about love? No, a different church. You gotta find a different church for that. That's not what we do around here. What we do around here is we talk about what's coming and to prepare. And one of the preparations we need to know is the fact that when persecution comes our way, we don't have to worry about what we're gonna say or say the wrong thing. Even in evangelism, you don't have to say, well, I'm not gonna say anything to this person about God because I don't know what I would say. No, that's the wrong posture. You don't need to worry about what you're gonna say. Open your mouth and the Spirit will speak through you. By faith, that's gonna happen. The other promise that we have is that everything is gonna be revealed. And this includes all the lies that are gonna be told about you, just like they were told about Jesus. We're also told that you are valued and loved by the Father. So look, at this point, you're like, man, I did not expect this today. I'm not trying to be like a Debbie Downer, but things are, they're, they're gonna be changing soon. And it's up to us to make sure that we understand what the word of God has to say about this stuff. So there is coming a time when persecution will be increased and you got two perspectives on that. One is like, oh man, wasn't it great in the old days? Well, yeah, it was kind of great in the old days. But you know what else happened in the old days when there wasn't persecution? People compromised and hid among God's flock. Liars, cheaters, deceitful men and women, they were able to hide among God's flock. But what happens when persecution comes is all of a sudden you start realizing that the folks who really are sold out, who really treasure Jesus above, above, above other things, they're not gonna forsake him when it's not in their best interest. And to me, knowing that over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, this world's gonna look very different when it comes to Christianity, it does not make me sad. It actually makes me excited. Because if you look at the history of the church, the church has always grown through persecution. Always. It's grown in depth, it's grown in number, it's grown in zeal and passion. And if we know that that's what's heading our way, I may be in the minority, but I am excited about it. 
Send it our way because I would rather have 10 sold out lovers of Jesus who treasure him above all that have sold everything they have to buy the treasure in the field than 50 clowns who are playing games. Let's go to verse 34. This difference between those who are sold out, who are clear disciples and those who are fooling around. It's made clear who they are because of what Jesus tells us in verse 34. He says, look guys, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. What? I thought you were, I I thought that's why you were here. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. I thought that's why you were here. Well, yes and no. It's peace for some, but it's death for others. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. No, 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 no. I have come to bring a sword. For I have come to set man against his father and daughter against his mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever finds, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is, this is some really, really heavy scripture. Ah, I'm gonna read this again. Let's do this. I want you guys to close your eyes and just listen to this. Holy Spirit, I ask you to just sink this into our hearts so that we can really grasp what you're saying here. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All right, now look at me. He's not saying that you shouldn't love your family. He's not saying that you shouldn't treasure your children. Paul tells us that one of the qualifiers for ministry, you can't serve within a church unless you've actually loving and serving within your home first. You gotta have your home in order before you lead within the church. So we know that the importance of the way that family works is there. The love of a father and a son and a daughter and a mother, those are all there. But he's making a very specific point here. He's saying that even good things, even the best things like family can be elevated to a status of idol and that will keep you from the kingdom of God too. You can't say I'm a righteous person because I love my family if you love your family more than you love Jesus. There is not a harder pill to swallow For Jesus to look at you and say, I need you to love me more than you love your husband. The one who looks for you, looks out for you, cares for you, 
loves you. I need you to need me. I need you to make sure that I complete you and not him. Guys, I need your identity not found in the fact that you are a good father, but that you are a son of God and you are sold out to Jesus and you are a good father because you have a good father. And if you can't do that, if you can't cherish him above all, even the greatest of things, then you are not worthy to be counted among his family. What does this require? What is discipleship? It is not showing up to church every week. It is not getting rowdy during worship. It is not reading more than the next person. It is not looking like a religious fanatic. It is taking up your cross. It is sacrificing. It is walking the narrow path. It is putting your flesh to death because Jesus is above all. Because Christ is greater than any plan you have ever concocted on your best day of coming up with plans. The message that Jesus is giving us is clear. You have to forsake everything to follow. And if you can't do that, you are not worthy to follow and you are also not worthy to lead. So this is, this is for you and this is also for me. I'm not qualified to talk to you about this stuff if I am not first leading in examples of doing this. And I've got a lot of work to do. But the standard is the same for everyone. So that's the sobering thing I want us to know today. We're not, we're not counted worthy to follow him unless we've made the decision to forsake this world. But if we do, if we do, we are promised that we will be rewarded. Go to verse 40. It says, whoever receives me, whoever receives me receives him who sent me. One who receives a prophet because he's a prophet is going to receive a prophet's reward. And one who receives a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Do you know that in the New Testament, just in the Gospels, over 25 times Jesus promises that we will be rewarded in the life to come. That one of our primary motivations for obedience is not just because it's the right thing to do, but because in eternity, our King will reward you. You can't approach God unless you believe that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Our posture before our God is the belief that He is a rewarder and that he will reward our suffering and persecution with eternal life because of what Christ did. So here's the heavy message that I want us to let sink into our hearts as we close today. 
the idea that this is not a game, this is not a club, this is not something that you can sign up for and then back off of when it's inconvenient. This is all or nothing. You either forsake your life, be raised new, or you live your life in a way where you pretend like this is just a game and you're just fulfilling religious quotas of showing up where you have to be when you have to, do, when you have to be there. But if you do decide to forsake all, you are promised that you will share in the eternal reward with the King of glory for all eternity. And the weight of that decision, the weight of why we follow him is what I want to sink into your hearts today. So on that, I want us to close in prayer. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.